The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Democrats be empowering the Republicans. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Former Vice President Joe Biden reemerges from the basement bunker and he wore a mask. President Trump did not. What does it say for the state of play in 2020? We're going to dive into that. We've got an all-star panel. I'm incredibly excited about uh, all of this. We're going to touch on the economy, politics, and, of course, uh, reopening. Did you go out this weekend? Did you go to the shore? What would you do? I stayed put. Shelter in place until we're in phase one. Headline crossing the Bloomberg Terminal today. The U.S. weighing sanctions on Chinese officials and firms over Hong Kong. Jenny Leonard, Jennifer Jacobs, and Saleh Mosin reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal. The Trump administration is considering a range of sanctions on Chinese officials, businesses, and financial institutions over Beijing's effort to crack down on Hong Kong, according to people familiar with the matter. So, tensions with the U.S. and China continuing, continuing to rise. Meanwhile, U.S. cases rise 1.1%, but this is good news. This is good news because that is the slowest increase of COVID-19 cases since March. This is states reopen. Everyone going to be seeing the pace of the reopening and how it impacts the spread of the virus, does it? And that's where we begin this evening. Dr. John Johnson's on the line. He is the CEO of Edgeworth Analytics and an MIT PhD economist. Dr. Johnson, first time on the program. Appreciate you coming in. Where do we stand on reopening the economy and the spread of the virus? Well, the first thing to sort of understand is we basically still have 50 states all operating sort of under different plans. And so we've got quite a hodgepodge of sort of economic circumstances. You've got states like Georgia, Florida, sort of at the forefront of opening pretty aggressively. You have other states that are still pretty much on lockdown and very gradually reopening. So from a practical standpoint, you're sort of watching this occur. We're sort of trying to look at these 50 different sort of little experiments across the country to determine how does it change the economic conditions and how does it relate to the health crisis in terms of the number of cases. I mean, the unemployment filings, uh, are, are are really hard to to fathom the magnitude, the 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 greatest unemployment crisis since the Great Depress, Depression. I mean, it's it's millions of Americans, thirty six plus millions of Americans having filed for unemployment. How do you crunch the numbers on this? Because Edgeworth Analytics has put together a map in terms of zip code. What are you noticing in the data about a potential? trend toward reopening? Are we over the worst in terms of unemployment? I don't think we're quite over the worst yet, unfortunately. I wish I could say differently. Um, Look, the first thing we have to keep remembering is you're absolutely right. I mean, economists use this phrase unprecedented, you know, all the time we're talking about economic phenomena. But But this is for real. 
This is for real. This is the real deal, right? This is just something that is beyond comprehension to just about anyone. I mean, we've never seen anything like this in our lifetime. So what we're starting to look for, though, is as the numbers come out, and of course, the data's lagged a little bit, right? These uninsurance claims numbers come out weekly, but the numbers from the, you know, the government that actually get into the sectors that are affected, you know, those are lagged a couple of weeks. And what it started to happen in April is, you know, of course, the obvious sectors, restaurants, hospitality, hotels, airlines really hit hard. We started to see that deepening a little bit into some other sectors, manufacturing, durable goods, and the like. So what we're going to be looking for over the next few weeks as sectors sort of reopen, as states start to reopen, is what comes back first and how quickly can they come back, right? There's a lot of discussion about the V-shaped recovery, but that's pretty unlikely in a circumstance where we still have to get a good handle on what happens as we reopen. And if you're just joining us, Dr. John Johnson's on the line. He's the CEO of Edgeworth Analytics, and MIT PhD economist. He's getting wonky. I love it. He's talking about a V <laughs> curve, which would mean that we swoop down a vertical downward trend, and then we bottom out and then spike right back up once the economy reopens. But economists like Dr. Johnson are saying no. It could potentially be, I'm going to guess you would say a Nike swoosh, more gradual. Okay, <laughs> when is the top of the Nike swoosh, Dr. Johnson? Yeah, well, that's a, I wish I knew. I, I wish I could really tell you with certainty. But I So think, do I. Like I think a lot of people want to know. <laughs> right. So, look, here's what I would say. is like, Here's what you sort of want to watch for, okay? We want to watch to see if the numbers are going to kind of start to uh, come back. How quickly are we going to see these uninsurance claims sort of drop? That's kind of one of our leading indicators. So that's the first thing we want to definitely look for. Um, we went into this pretty quickly. Um, obviously, the states are not going to all reopen quickly. And so I think that, you know, we're talking much more months than sort of weeks. That's the first thing. And then the second thing that we really have to watch for is as we reopen, do we suddenly see another spike? in cases, right? Because if we see another spike, that's going to set us back. And that's when you sort of get, as opposed to the swoosh, now you get a W, you get another dip. And the second dip might be a lot more traumatic because, quite frankly, the psychology of people going back to stimulate the economy is going to be a pretty important part of this recovery. So when you look at the demographic impacts, and over the weekend we had our Bloomberg television special on this, on um, America's employment bust. And we, we talked, we've been talking to folks about this forever. But it seems. But the demographics of this, who are, who is the most negatively impacted? Because I'm sick and tired of hearing that the virus affects everyone the same. It doesn't, maybe medically speaking, but it doesn't economically speaking. So who are the, who are the hardest hit demographics? Right. So first of all, you know, one thing in terms of just the virus itself is clearly there is a pretty big difference in terms of who are the at-risk population, which is right, clearly of course. older, no, I agree. older I agree. folks, right? That's yeah. sort of first and foremost. But in terms of where we're seeing sort of hits, um, interestingly, you know, um, it is broad-based, but there are definitely pockets, you know, first, not surprising, teenagers, that 16 to 19-year-old, that group has been sort of devastated, right? They can't so get a summer job. Sort of jobs. They can't right, get exactly. a summer so job. What are all those kids going to do? They're going to make TikToks all summer. TikToks, go ahead. <laughs> right. Um, but even when you go across the board, you know, by demographics, you know, 14% for whites, 16.7% for African-Americans, 18 to 19% for Hispanics, and even men and women, a little bit more on the female side, actually. You're sort of seeing higher unemployment rates as well. But again, what is sort of interesting about this right now is sort of where we're really seeing the, 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 the round of hits are sort of workers in those sectors which have sort of less job attachment, right? So back to the restaurants that are closing, the airline segment, you know, those are the places where we're seeing these big losses. So um, it is another example of how the, the income inequality 
in the economy, we're seeing this exact same thing. You're hitting sort of lower income groups really hard with this uh, crisis. That doesn't mean it doesn't go up and down, but that's really where you're seeing the hit the hardest. It's awful. We've only got 90 seconds left, but just put it in perspective for us. I mean, it's not only you've got that situation, but it's hard as an economist, it must be, to crunch the numbers on these data when, number one, states' computer systems can't keep up with the data. And as you just laid out, in terms of demographics and, and industries, some of these states and the data and the numbers coming from the government are lagging several weeks behind. That's got to make your job as an economist even harder. Yeah, it's really frustrating in, in many respects. I mean, we've seen these issues recently with the testing data and the fact that they're conflating different types of tests into the same data. You know, you've got this super interesting point from a data perspective. You've got epidemiological data and economic data. And, you know, and I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm an economist, but I've got to link the two to kind of make sense of all of this. So the inherent lags in the data when the economy is just churning at such a fast race is unprecedented. So it's really like a pretty elaborate jigsaw puzzle where we're getting snapshots of different pieces and kind of trying to piece it together. Um, But yeah, the lags in the data are really tough for sort of perspective views on what's going on. All right, Dr. John Johnson, Edwards Analytics CEO and an MIT PhD economist. Come back and talk to us. Thanks so much for your time. And I hear you're on the board of the National Archives Foundation. Is National Treasure kind of true? Maybe. Wow. No answer. I guess he's off the line. Maybe he can't answer it. Coming up, more policy and politics. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli, and I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio, and I'm very excited for our next guest because she's got a new book out that I cannot wait to get my hands on. Uh, It's on pre-order right now. It's called Amateur Hour, Presidential Character and the Question of Leadership. And it examines the third year of presidencies and asks this question of will we as a society, will we as a country continue to elect outsiders, not just any outsider, amateur outsiders, outsiders who maybe haven't dabbled in politics and not just the Donald Trumps of the world, but maybe the Oprah Winfrey's of the world, maybe another type of celebrity businessman, entrepreneur of the world. Welcome to the program, Dr. Lara Brown. Uh, She is the author of this new forthcoming book and also the director of the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. Dr. Brown, thank you for being here. And why did you want to write this book and what did you find out? Well, first, thank you for having me on, Kevin. It's great to talk today. And I really started this with a question of how is it that Donald Trump's character, his actual background profile as a celebrity real estate mogul with no political experience, known to have a volatile temperament and a scandalous personal background, um, was considered to be the sufficient character for somebody to fill the office of the presidency. I like and that, that word question. character. And do you mean character as character as in like – Uh, morals and ethics, or do you mean character in the sense of a character persona? Well, so here's what's interesting, is that character has so many different meanings, but I would argue that sort of our our notion of it today is that it is much more like brand than it is 
um, whole personality, right? It is what you are known for. So in past times, character meant not just um, kind of who you are as a person, but also the roles that you portrayed in life. And there was an actual effort on the part of presidents and really your average American to step into a role and perform that role to the highest and best ability. And all of that's kind of broken down, um, and we have become very enamored by the idea, by the idea of authenticity and that all that's really needed now is for somebody to be authentic, and it doesn't really matter if they're authentically awful. You know, I think this is such a fascinating conversation to be having, especially right now at the cusp of when the 2020 race is really going to begin in earnest. And of course, over the weekend, you know, former Vice President Joe Biden emerging out of the basement bunker studio wearing a mask in contrast with President Trump who is not wearing a mask. What do you think that says right there? I think it illustrates the heart of your book as a perfect illustration of that persona, that President Trump, that authenticity, right, wrong, or indifferent. You either love it or you hate it, love him or loathe him. But that right there and the symbol of the mask is really what you're talking about. It is. And the symbol of the mask is a decision of a leader to basically portray a certain virtue. So one of the things I talk about in my book is that I analyze these presidents on essentially three different dimensions of character. I, I say, are they trying to portray courage? Are they attempting to portray a sense of compassion? Or are they attempting to show or demonstrate their own curiosity? Because I tend to believe that those are really the dimensions of our behaviors at any one time. And President Trump only knows what we might consider to be courage, right, strength, Um, and that sense of fortitude. He doesn't exude or want to portray empathy or compassion. And he seems to think that curiosity is a weakness, not a strength, that asking questions in and of itself portrays somehow that you don't know something. Dr. Lara Brown's on the line. She's the director of the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University and the author of the new book, Amateur Hour, Presidential Character and the Question of Leadership. Continuing with this conversation, one of the things based upon the early reviews and the early synopses, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I should know I that. I couldn't tell you. Neither could I. Okay, good. I was hoping I wouldn't get corrected. Uh, but what is, is that you, you arrive at the conclusion that as a society, as a society, we are going to continue electing these types of outsiders. Why do you think that is? Well, so much of what I trace this to was our country's disillusionment in the wake of both the Vietnam War and Watergate. So you had two kind of ultimate political insiders, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, who both were elected to the presidency back-to-back, and obviously Lyndon Johnson took over after the death of John F. Kennedy, but he was re-elected in just a landslide in 64. And these presidents then led us down these roads um, with Vietnam, with um, Johnson, and then the Watergate scandal 
occurring under Nixon that really shocked the country and brought them to a place of, you know, distrust for Washington, the sense that experts lie, the sense that political experience doesn't get you anything. And so with that, and really since the time of Jimmy Carter, we have been over and over again, electing people who tell us they're Washington outsiders and they're going to fix Washington. And with every iteration, it seems that they get further outside of Washington or further outside of the political world, right? So certainly, you know, Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton had been longtime governors. Um, but then you look to somebody like George W. Bush, and yeah. governor um, was really the first office he had served in, and he had only been there six years. Yeah. You look at um, Barack Obama. He had only been in the U.S. Senate for a few years before he ran. So this sense of, I want an outsider to fix the system. Yeah. Part of what's driving it. Dr. Lara Brown, she's the director of graduate school of political management at GWU, George Washington, uh, and the author of the new book, GW. Why I said GWU? I don't know. GW. And the author of the new book, Amateur Hour. Be sure to pick it up. More next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. So what everybody do over the weekend, Governor Northam headed down to the beach, didn't wear a mask. He stepped in it, folks. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Jenda Soar's on the line, Republican strategist, former chairwoman of the Massachusetts Republican Party, founder of Conservative Women for a Better Future. Jen, did you wear a mask this weekend? <laughs> I did. I did. I, I was wearing my mask. Who says Republicans don't wear masks? Exactly. <laughs> see, see that? We can find something for everyone on this show. Jen, I appreciate you calling in. Uh, what do you make of the status of the reopening? Well, first, before we get into politics, give me a give me the lowdown up there in Patriots country. Ugh, I'm not a fan of the New England Patriots, but what's going on <laughs> with Massachusetts in terms of the economy and reopening? Kevin, I could hear you choking out the word Patriots. It sounded very, very difficult for you. Yeah, it's, we beat you guys um, in that one Super Bowl and the Eagles won. That's all I'm going to say. Go ahead. We are, we are very sad that we don't have sports right now. I think that's, that's one of the, the things we're missing the most yeah. up here. Um, you know, it's Massachusetts. We, I think our governor has done a remarkable job. Um, he, he built an entirely new testing infrastructure from scratch with the help of MIT and Harvard. Um, we're down to uh, 9% positive test now. We are closing our field hospitals. We're, you know, in the slow reopening in phase one. 
And Massachusetts, unfortunately, was the third highest in the death toll and uh, nearing 6,500 folks, um, sadly, who have lost their lives. About 60% of those were in nursing homes. Um, but between the governor, between Governor Baker and Mayor Walsh, um, they worked together and they showed really what it's like to be collaborative and work together and also work with all of our fine hospitals. See, I find that fascinating just given, you know, the, the polarization right now in our country and, and many folks really nervous about the situation for what exactly would happen up there in Boston and suburban Boston uh, in particular. Uh, so let me ask you, as we pivot back to, to, to politics for a second, in 2020, suburbanites are going to be so crucial, the swing voters. Uh, the president overperformed in 2016 in many of those districts, didn't necessarily win them, but overperformed. And suburban women are going to be so crucial to both the Biden campaign and the Trump reelect. Do you think President Trump is better suited this go around since he's we already know all the stuff that's been out there about him or or do you think that he is still going to struggle uh with suburban women you know it's so it's really interesting because i don't i mean i i put myself in that demographic right i'm a mom i've got kids i you know i i listen to him and i just say oh god please turn his twitter off right but (laughs) at the the same time it's the it doesn't become i guess the question becomes is it the evil you know versus the evil you don't so we know all of trump's sins and we know what he is like but you know biden you have the whole tara reed situation is there anyone else he's a career politician what else is happening over that period of time he's you know are we are we sure that he's not picking a vice president because he really isn't going to make it through his entire first term um you know who is that vice president going to be if it's someone like elizabeth warren i can tell you right now biden is going to lose big because suburban women will look at her as a um, Hillary Clinton on steroids, right? It is not the woman who's going to lift up any other woman. So everyone will then just automatically hold their noses and vote for Trump. Right. Okay. So when you move this forward, Jenna Sword's on the line. She's a Republican strategist, former chairwoman of the Massachusetts Republican Party, founder of Conservative Women for a Better Future. But like, to me, based as a reporter, when I have conversations, I just think this is going to get ugly because I remember the Access Hollywood tape covering that. I now am hearing the Tara Reid allegations. This is going to be a slugfest. Absolutely. And and any election is, right? And now, I mean, Trump can kind of take the gloves off even more because before with, with Hillary, it seemed like you can't be the man who's beating up on a woman. But now he it's an even fight. They're essentially the same age. Um, you know, they both, are, you know, have, have things that they've done that I'm sure each of them are sorry for. Um, and so it's going to be a success no matter what. I think at the end of the day, though, we don't give, we as a society do not give women enough credit for having their own thoughts and their own views on why they want to see someone in office. So they want to feel secure. They want security. They want economic security. They want, women want to know that we have opportunities for jobs, that our kids are going to get the best education no matter what. And I think what happens a lot on the Democratic side is that there's a big focus on 
social issues and social issues only. But I think that when we get past the pandemic and we get into the presidential election again and the economy starts to go up and women have been the ones holding jobs down and women are the ones who are teaching our children, many women are teaching our children and are on the front lines of this. And I think when we see us reemerge, there are going to be many more opportunities. The economy is going to go back up. If people feel safe, families feel safe, we're going to see that, okay, you know, we, we're coming out of this, and who is the person who is there? And so I think that that, that favors Trump. I, this is not a landslide. This is not open and closed. Trump has to be really careful and cautious. Um, to make sure that he's not not alienating and offending any more women than he already has in the past. But again, I don't think Biden's running away from the Tara Reid situation um, was helping anything. You know, but you mentioned the tweets at the start of the program. And I mean, you go to any of the, the major publications right now or any of the major liberal and or, or conservative blogs, and they're all talking about the the Twitter, the things that he's tweeted about Joe Scarborough and and the whole intern situation and the father of the the woman who passed away and, mm-hmm. and requesting that these tweets be taken down and it's just more you know you say you don't like the tweets and but it just is more noise is that helpful in your view to the president's reelection effort and why is he doing no. it no, someone, I mean, from day one, I said someone should take his phone away. I mean, it's like having one of my teenagers and taking their phone and throwing it in a safe. I, you know, he's, he's kind of in the same category, but we know that about him. So, so at the end of the day, when you are electing people to office, sometimes you have to put their personality traits on hold and look at how they are as a leader and at what are they doing and what is your level of I remember back 2001, September 11th, and thinking George W. was a hero because I felt more comfortable knowing that he was our president at the time, not less comfortable. And you want to feel that the economy is going to get back on its feet. You want to feel that your national security is is safe and and doing what it's supposed to do and your family is okay and that there aren't going to be any type of threats. And so if Trump could maybe um, stop acting like he's the kid in the sandbox and, and just calling names, I think a lot of it, too, is deflecting from what he's, he's trying to do. You know, and it, so right now we have to get through this pandemic. You know, and, and it's, it's, there's so many unknowns with this election. Will the pandemic be over uh, by that? Will most of the economy be reopened? Will there be, heaven forbid, a resurgence of the virus? No one wants to see that on either side. And, and you know, what other political mud on both sides will be tossed at each other? You mentioned the economy. Let's just talk. Let's check in with the Bloomberg Terminal for a second because the stock rally was tempered by China tensions. U.S. stocks rose but closed sharply off their highs after Bloomberg News reported that the Trump administration is considering sanctions on Chinese officials threatening to escalate tensions between the world's two largest economies. The S&P 500 ended up 1.2% at an 11-week high, giving up in the final half hour of trading almost 50% gains the top 2%. This was the first day that the New York Stock Exchange that everyone had returned to work, mind you. So it was a, uh, a returning day. And hey, I just saw the breaking news that the NHL 
Gen has announced plans for a reopening. So at least one major sports league is already announcing their plans. Jen Nassour, Republican strategist and former chairwoman of the Massachusetts Republican Party, founder of Conservative Women for a Better Future. Thank you for joining us. And coming up next, we talk all we talk with Chuck Marino, CEO of Sentinel Security Solution. Everything about pro sports. We're going to talk more pro sports and reopening. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg. 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Chuck Marino, CEO of Sentinel Security Solutions, joins us. He's former DHS advisor and former Secret Service supervisory special agent. That's a mouthful, Chuck. Thanks for joining us. Um, I want to talk to you about reopenings because in terms of reopening the economy, every state, it's like a patchwork. You've got California, New York, and Texas. They've all been given the all clear to resume pro sports next month. But what do you do if you don't live in those states, Chuck? Hey, Kevin, how are you? Thanks for having me here. Uh, You bring up a very complicated uh, logistical issue that the sports leagues are working through right now. So, you know, let's, let's look at this and remember that each of the sports leagues are in their own kind of different situation, right? We had the NBA and NHL have their seasons abruptly canceled just prior to the playoffs, right? So they're looking to make up a shorter duration. Then you've got Major League Baseball, who's making a decision on what their full season is going to look like. Um, Their full season may be just half the amount of games. And then you've got the NFL that's kind of on the tail end of all this. That is the one league that really has what I would call the luxury of time to observe what the other leagues are going to do. Maybe the the situation changes in terms of the coronavirus amounts that are going on. Maybe there's a decrease at levels off. So they really are what I would say in the best strategic position to to decide what they want to do. And I think as you hear from them right now, um, they're committed to playing their season um, as scheduled. Uh, Same amount of games, no changes. Fans in the stands, that's a, a more complicated issue that we can go into. Well that's what yeah, that's what I want to that's where I want to take the conversation with Chuck Marino, CEO of Sentinel Security Solutions. You know, you've worked at DHS, you're a former Secret Service Supervisory Special Agent. I don't even know what that means. Thank what is you. it first of all, what does that mean? I, I, I must be special in some way, Kevin. Yes. Well no, but seriously, I mean <laughs> what 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 is that title? Thank you for your service, but that that must mean you were pretty far up there, my friend. Um but with fans in the stands, I mean, that's a huge deal. That's a huge deal because, number one, I think first and foremost, who would be able to go to the games? That presents some challenges with social inequality. Yeah, it sure does. You know, the, the first thing in, in speaking to, you know, my, my sources in, in each of the leagues, they, they, they understand and appreciate um, the role that sports plays in our in our communities uh, and, and across the country. But that is not going to supersede um, their commitment to doing this safely and making sure that the overall safety and security and health uh, of everybody involved uh, remains first and foremost. 
So I think the reality of the situation is this. Um, NFL aside for the points I raised earlier, I think the NBA and Major League Baseball, as we saw with NASCAR last week, you're not going to see fans um, in the stands as, as these leagues start up, which I have great confidence they're going to come up with ideas. You're hearing about the NBA talking about possibly going down to Disney World, um, down to the ESPN uh, wide world of sports facilities. That makes a lot of sense for the duration of time that they're looking for to make up for the playoffs and the finals, where you can have almost a secure campus. You know, Kevin, you can have players and teams practice there. You can have them play their games there. And you can house them there. So you're kind of creating this, this secure environment where COVID tests are giving, um, body temperature uh, detection devices are being used to check um, temperatures on, on a daily basis. And wellness questions are asked each and every day, contact, travel, um, any other symptoms. They don't need to worry about that. Major League Baseball, the same thing. You know, just keeping these sports leagues, Kevin, um, contained out of the gate to just players, staff, and, and other essential employees, you're still talking about a few hundred people that are required to support these games, including those responsible for televising them. So I think, you know, in, implement all, all the uh, multi-layered solutions that we're advising all of our clients to do, and that is temperature screening, COVID testing, wellness checks, really keeping these facilities uh, super sanitized um, and, and practicing, uh, you know, social distancing, all, all the CDC recommendations. So do you think that we're going to be back in time for NFL football? Or when, when will it return to normal? When will the sports leagues return to normal with fans in the stands? I think we're a long way off from that. Um, you know, this is, as I like to say, is going to look and feel a lot different. The country, as you know, looks to sports. You know, we have we have to look no further back than after September 11th and the role that Major League Baseball and the NFL played in kind of indicating to the, the country that we were getting back on our feet. While slowly, we were getting back on our feet and sports were resuming. I think we're going to see the same type of situation here but it's going to be much different. Um, no stands to start off. No fans to start off with in the stands, as, as I discussed. And then I think you see definitely with Major League Baseball the possibility of incremental fan attendance. I mean, I'm talking about maybe in the vicinity of 25 percent. Again, you have to prove the policies and the procedures are working. Once they work, you don't want to overwhelm yourself and go against everything that's been recommended yeah. by the health professionals. Hey, Chuck Marino, CEO of Sentinel Security Solutions. Talk to us from a business perspective. Put, take us in the minds of the heads of these sports leagues and the C, as CEOs and less about the fans for just a minute. Like, What, what are some of the actual concerns that they have as, as business leaders and, and the liability? I think as business leaders and the liability in the communities where they're located is simply this. Whether you're a large Fortune 500 company or you're a sports team and you've got an arena hosting sports and concerts and you're looking to get back into business, none of these leaders wants to be responsible for an outbreak in their communities that can set their, their communities back um, several steps. So that's first and foremost. That, that's where 
not only is there some liability with that, but also you're dealing with the public relations uh, and you're dealing with sick people. So nobody wants to deal with that. They're going to make sure, take it slow, and make sure that they have the approved policies and procedures to make sure they're safe. And, Kevin, you know, you brought it up earlier. No states are in exactly the same point. You've got the states in turn deciding how they're rolling it out, how they're going to reopen businesses and these large venues. Then you've got the counties within the state. Then you've got the cities within the counties, right? You have to look no further than San Francisco and New York City, who are still under shelter-in-place orders to the middle of June. So that's an example there where they're going to have to navigate all this, not just with the states, but also their local um their local leaders, health and safety leaders and medical directors to make sure that there's almost a collaboration and sign off and agreement in what the protocols are being put in place for these arenas. City and local officials are definitely going to want to be involved in that process. Well, and plus in the restaurants and the bars, I mean, my uncle Mikey has a hoagie shop. I mean, you just talk to them when the Eagles do good. That's that ex- that's the business source back in Delco because right. because of that. So, I mean, there's just so many different right things that to, to think about. Hey, Chuck, I got to ask, who are you biased for? Who do you root for? I'm a Giants fan. Ah, I knew it. Chuck Marino, CEO yeah. of Sentinel Security Solutions. I talked to a Patriots fan and a Giants fan today. It's like I don't even know myself anymore. <laughs> Chuck's a former DHS advisor, former Secret Service supervisory special agent, and we appreciate him coming on the program. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio. And thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.